Chapter 9 of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Daly. Chapter 9 It was at the sanatorium that my ankles were finally restored to a semblance of their former utility. They were there subjected to a course of heroic treatment. But, as today they permit me to walk, run, dance, and play tennis and golf, as do those who have never been crippled, my hours of torture endured under my first attempts to walk are almost pleasant to recall. About five months from the date of my injury I was allowed, or rather compelled, to place my feet on the floor and attempt to walk. My ankles were still swollen, absolutely without action, and acutely sensitive to the slightest pressure. From the time they were hurt, until I again began to talk, two years later, I asked not one question as to the probability of my ever regaining the use of them. The fact was, I never expected to walk naturally again. The desire of my doctors to have me walk, I believed to be inspired by the detectives, of whom, indeed, I supposed the doctor himself to be one. Had there been any confession to make, I am sure it would have been yielded under the stress of this ultimate torture, the million needle-points which, just prior to my mental collapse, seemed to goad my brain, now centered their unwelcome attention on the soles of my feet. Had the floor been studded with minute stilettos, my sufferings could hardly have been more intense. For several weeks assistance was necessary with each attempt to walk, and each attempt was an ordeal. Sweat stood in beads on either foot, wrung from my blood by agony. Believing that it would only be a question of time when I should be tried, condemned, and executed for some one of my countless felonies, I thought that the attempt to prevent my continuing a cripple for the brief remainder of my days was prompted by anything but benevolence. The superintendent would have proved himself more humane had he not peremptorily ordered my attendant to discontinue the use of a support which, until the plaster bandages were removed, had enabled me to keep my legs in a horizontal position when I sat up. His order was that I should put my legs down and keep them down, whether it hurt or not. The pain was, of course, intense when the blood again began to circulate freely through tissues long unused to its full pressure, and so evident was my distress that the attendant ignored the doctor's command and secretly favored me. He would remove the forbidden support for only a few minutes at a time, gradually lengthening the intervals, until at last I was able to do without the support entirely. Before long, and each day for several weeks, I was forced at first to stagger and finally to walk across the room and back to the bed. The distance was increased as the pain diminished, until I was able to walk without more discomfort than a comparatively pleasant sensation of lameness. For at least two months after my feet first touched the floor, I had to be carried up and down stairs, and for several months longer I went flat-footed. Delusions of persecution, which include delusions of self-reference, though a source of annoyance while I was in an inactive state, annoyed and distressed me even more when I began to move about and was obliged to associate with other patients. To my mind, not only were the doctors and attendants detectives, each patient was a detective and the whole institution was a part of the third degree. 
Scarcely any remark was made in my presence that I could not twist into a cleverly veiled reference to myself. In each person I could see a resemblance to persons I had known, or to the principals or victims of the crimes with which I imagined myself charged. I refused to read, for to read veiled charges and fail to assert my innocence was to incriminate both myself and others. But I looked with longing glances upon all printed matter, and as my curiosity was continually piqued, this enforced abstinence grew to be well-nigh intolerable. It became again necessary to the family purse that every possible saving be made. Accordingly, I was transferred from the main building, where I had a private room and a special attendant, to a ward, where I was to mingle, under an aggregate sort of supervision, with fifteen or twenty other patients. Here I had no special attendant by day, though one slept in my room at night. Of this ward I had heard alarming reports, and these from the lips of several attendants. I was, therefore, greatly disturbed at the proposed change. But the transfer once accomplished, after a few days I really liked my new quarters better than the old. During the entire time I remained at the sanatorium, I was more alert mentally than I gave evidence of being. But not until after my removal to this ward, where I was left alone for hours every day, did I dare to show my alertness. Here I even went so far on one occasion as to joke with the attendant in charge. He had been trying to persuade me to take a bath. I refused, mainly because I did not like the looks of the bathroom, which, with its cement floor and central drain, resembled the room in which vehicles are washed in a modern stable. After all else had failed, the attendant tried the role of sympathizer. "'Now I know just how you feel,' he said. "'I can put myself in your place.' "'Well, if you can, do it and take the bath yourself.' was my retort. The remark is brilliant by contrast with the dismal source from which it escaped. Escaped is the word, for the fear that I should hasten my trial by exhibiting too great a gain in health, mental or physical, was already upon me, and it controlled much of my conduct during the succeeding months of depression. Having now no special attendant, I spent many hours in my room, alone, but not absolutely alone, for somewhere the eye of a detective was ever more upon me. Comparative solitude, however, gave me courage, and soon I began to read, regardless of the consequences. During the entire period of my depression, every publication seemed to have been written and printed for me, and me alone. Books, magazines, and newspapers seemed to be special editions. The fact that I well knew how inordinate would be the cost of such a procedure in no way shook my belief in it. Indeed, that I was costing my persecutors fabulous amounts of money was a source of secret satisfaction. My belief in special editions of newspapers was strengthened by items which seemed too trivial to warrant publication in any except editions issued for a special purpose. I recall a seemingly absurd advertisement in which the phrase, Green Bluefish, appeared. At the time, I did not know that green was a term used to denote fresh or unsalted. During the earliest stages of my illness, I had lost count of time, and the calendar did not write itself until the day when I largely regained my reason. Meanwhile, 
The date on each newspaper was, according to my reckoning, two weeks out of the way. This confirmed my belief in the special editions as part of the third degree. Most sane people think that no insane person can reason logically, but this is not so. Upon unreasonable premises, I made most reasonable deductions, and that at the time when my mind was in its most disturbed condition. Had the newspapers which I read on the day which I supposed to be February 1st borne a January date, I might not then, for so long, have believed in special editions. Probably I should have inferred that the regular editions had been held back. But the newspapers I had were dated about two weeks ahead. Now if a sane person on February 1st receives a newspaper dated February 14th, he will fully be justified in thinking something wrong, either with the publication or with himself. But the shifted calendar which had planted itself in my mind meant as much to me as the true calendar does to any sane businessman. During the 798 days of depression, I drew countless incorrect deductions. But such as they were, they were deductions, and essentially the mental process was not other than that which takes place in a well-ordered mind. My gradually increasing vitality, although it increased my fear of trial, impelled me to take new risks. I began to read not only newspapers, but also such books as were placed within my reach. Yet had they not been placed there, I should have gone without them for I would never ask even for what I greatly desired and knew I could have for the asking. Whatever love of literature I now have dates from this time, when I was a mental incompetent and confined in an institution. Lying on a shelf of my room was a book by George Eliot. For several days I cast longing glances at it, and finally plucked up the courage to take little nibbles now and then. These were so good that I grew bold and at last began openly to read the book. Its content at the time made but little impression on my mind, but I enjoyed it. I read also some of Addison's essays, and had I been fortunate enough to have made myself familiar with these earlier in life, I might have been spared the delusion that I could detect, in many passages, the altering hand of my persecutors. The friendly attendant, from whom I was now separated, tried to send his favors after me into my new quarters. At first he came in person to see me, but the superintendent soon forbade that, and also ordered him not to communicate with me in any way. It was this disagreement, and others naturally arising between such a doctor and such an attendant, that soon brought about the discharge of the latter. But discharge is hardly the word for he had become disgusted with the institution, and had remained so long only because of his interest in me. Upon leaving, he informed the owner that he would soon cause my removal from the institution. This he did. I left the sanatorium in March 1901, and remained for three months in the home of this kindly fellow, who lived with a grandmother and an aunt in Wallingford, a town not far from New Haven. It is not to be inferred that I entertained any affection for my friendly keeper. I continued to regard him as an enemy, and my life at his home became a monotonous round of displeasure. I took my three meals a day, 
I would sit listlessly for hours at a time in the house. Daily I went out, accompanied, of course, for short walks about the town. These were not enjoyable. I believed everybody was familiar with my black record and expected me to be put to death. Indeed, I wondered why passers-by did not revile me or even stone me. Once I was sure I heard a little girl call me traitor. That, I believe, was my last false voice, but it made such an impression that I can even now recall vividly the appearance of that dreadful child. It was not surprising that a piece of rope, old and frayed, which someone had carelessly thrown on a hedge by a cemetery that I sometimes passed, had for me great significance. During these three months I again refused to read books, though within my reach, but I sometimes read newspapers. Still I would not speak, except under some unusual stress of emotion. The only time I took the initiative in this regard while living in the home of my attendant was on a bitterly cold and snowy day when I had the temerity to tell him that the wind had blown the blanket from a horse that had been standing for a long time in front of the house. The owner had come inside to transact some business with my attendant's relatives. In appearance he reminded me of the uncle to whom this book is dedicated. I imagined the mysterious caller was impersonating him, and, by one of my curious mental processes, I deduced that it was incumbent on me to do for the dumb beast outside what I knew my uncle would have done had he been aware of its plight. My reputation for decency of feeling I believed to be gone forever, but I could not bear in this situation to be unworthy of my uncle, who, among those who knew him, was famous for his kindliness and humanity. My attendant and his relatives were very kind and very patient for I was still intractable. But their efforts to make me comfortable, so far as they had any effect, made keener my desire to kill myself. I shrank from death, but I preferred to die by my own hand and take the blame for it, rather than to be executed and bring lasting disgrace on my family, friends, and, I may add, with truth, on Yale. For I had reasoned that parents throughout the country would withhold their sons from a university which numbered among its graduates such a despicable being. But from any tragic act I was providentially restrained by the very delusion which gave birth to the desire, in a way which signally appeared on a later, and to me, a memorable day. End of chapter 9